before you find the seat, uh, give someone a big hug. Give, give just somebody a big old hug. There is a lot, of, a lot of love in this place. Just get a piece of that. All right. All right, take a seat. Whoa, some of you are generous. Some of you are still hugging. Some of you are hugging the fifth person, the sixth person out there. Holy cow. I am Pat, I'm one of the pastors on the team here, and it is my joy, my privilege to get to, to bring and share my heart and, uh, and to speak out of God's word this morning. And we are finishing up, we're in the final week, the very end of our journey through a series that we have called Curiously Strong Faith. Curiously Strong Faith. I love the F word. I love it. it I love faith. And I know so many in here in a room of this size would actually say that, you know what, I'm actually not a person of faith. I'm, I, you know, I come here out of support of this, this girl I've started dating, and you know, or, or I come here just out of rote, it's just something, the way I was raised, or I come here because of the free coffee, and can't blame you, it's good coffee. Uh, but I would push back a little bit, actually. I would push back, and I would say every person in here is a person of faith. Every person in here is a person of faith. Because faith really means you're just trusting something. You're placing your trust in something. Uh, you're trusting the seats right now. I mean, you didn't even think about it. You just sat down expecting it to hold you. So far, we're doing good. Uh, the platform here, I'm trusting this to hold me up. So far, we're doing good. Uh, we, we, we trust even the smallest of things without even thinking about it. Grabbed a little, a little mug here with a few things in it. Uh, we trust these guys. This is a little screw. I don't know if you can see it very well. Uh, we trust screws to hold boards together, to hold walls up, to hold the ceiling above us. Uh, we're trusting someone actually knew what they were doing and used the right ones and the right length ones. There's a lot of trust that goes into these little guys. Uh, we're trusting these as they hold together parts of our engines in our car. We're trusting these when we hop onto airplanes and we're flying across the Atlantic to get somewhere. Uh, so, so even things as small as little, little uh, fasteners, little hardware, these batteries, they come in all shapes and sizes. We trust them to bring our technology to life without blowing up. Like, like I think to Toyota had a problem with that with the Priuses at one point. But, but we trust batteries so much. We're carrying little armed like, you know, like batteries in our pockets with our smartphones without even thinking about it. But, but batteries are pretty crazy, pretty crazy chemicals, little reactions going on in those things. We trust them. And then lastly, I grabbed a couple pills of uh, ibuprofen. We love our drugs in America. All right, so uh, I am trusting that when I open a bottle of Advil, there's going to be Advil in there. It's not some poison. I'm not popping some pills that are going to just like make, you know, let me out cold. I'm trusting it can do what it claims to do, that it can take away pain or a headache. But there's even, there's, there's faith we're exercising all the time. And we're maybe not always aware of it. But ultimately, we are shaped by the faith, by the trust that we place in things, whether they be objects or people or economic systems or societal norms or cultural values. Um, we, we trust in things all the time, and they're, and they're shaping us. And we've all arrived, we've all arrived at kind of a shared understanding, a collective agreement that the wisest thing you can do is place your trust in something trustworthy, right? That you wanna, the, the goal is to place your faith in something faithful. 
And, and so, uh, uh, I mean, even uh, uh, the, go the goal is you want to place your faith in something you can know and that you can know well. And, and something that, that has a long track record of success, of, of, of maintaining that faith. And, and in fact, those are the things that Warren Buffett has used as parameters for his investing over the, the, the last decades to make billions. He wants to understand what he's investing in. And he wants to make sure that the track record of what he's investing in is going to continue, that these trends and the market growth. And so really there's three principles when it comes to faith. And then we're going to unpack uh, a beautiful story out of the Old Testament. But the, the three principles of faith are, are this. One, it's always dependent upon an object. It's always dependent upon either a thing or a person or a system. But, but to, your trust is placed in something else. The second thing is that the better you know that thing, the object of your faith, the better you know how much you can trust it. I will guarantee you, the people that you trust the most are probably the people you know the best. Uh, when Warren Buffett was asked, Warren Buffett, why did you not invest in Enron? You know what he said? I just didn't understand how they made money. <laughs> neither did Enron. I mean, neither did Arthur Anderson, you know? Like, like a wise man, right? You put your faith in something you actually can understand as a track record. And then the last thing that we've learned uh, over these last few weeks, and, and we'll see again repeated today, is that faith is an action word. It's not considered faith until there's some skin in the game or you've taken a risk. And so we got to remember those as we, as we uh, wrap this series up. But what I want to look at is, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to follow on the little note sheets, um, is a story out of the Old Testament. So far we've looked at Esther, we've looked at Job, we've looked at Josiah. Uh, if you haven't heard those messages, you can hop on the, the Overlake app or online and catch up if you want. Um, today, I had some like uh, decision crisis. I couldn't pick just one person. Uh, I couldn't even pick just two people. So I picked two million. I picked the Israelites. <laughs> so uh, there you go. So we're going to look at the Israelites. And, and they get a bad rap. I feel like they get a really bad rap for people of little faith, no faith, dis distorted or dysfunctional faith. And yet they had some moments of curiously strong faith that we can learn from. And we'll look at one this morning. Um, but let me set a context. We'll be in Exodus chapter one. Let me set the context a little bit. The Israelites have been in the land of Egypt for 400, 430 years is what we see in Scripture. They've been in Egypt 430 years. When they first got there, back in the time of Joseph, if you remember that story, Joseph, the coat of many colors, uh, he helped save the whole region from this crazy famine. And so the, 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 the Hebrew people were able to move there as favored guests. And then you fast forward and you recognize that somewhere in this story, the Israelites have ended up as bond servants, as slaves, as the labor force for, the, for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And, and, and it really is a narrative of something called totalism. Uh, everybody go like this. Totalism. Everybody. Totalism. Oh, some of you really went far. I'm not even kidding. The guy over here was like, blah. So uh, totalism. Uh, if you need to apologize to someone you just hit, you know, like, do that now. Take care of it. But totalism. Totalism is a narrative of this vast accumulation, these monopolies on everything from all the ideas and all the innovation and, and all the technology and, and just all the vast wealth and all the commerce. And that's what Egypt had. That's what Fair, under Pharaoh's leadership, that's what Egypt had. And we see that happen. We see that unpack in Genesis in these seven years of famine that Joseph helped navigate the Egyptians through. As the whole lands, the whole lands surrounding Egypt would come to Egypt to buy uh, food. 
Egypt actually uh, stored up all this extra food in the seven years of abundance. So people first, they come these first year or two of the famine, and they unload all their money in exchange for, for food so that they can live. Then they come back. They're out of money. So what do they do? They bring their, their livestock. They give the Egyptians their livestock, it says, in exchange for food. Then they're out of money. They're out of livestock. So what do they do? They trade over the lands under Pharaoh's control. And then lastly, their lives. And so you have this narrative of totalism. And what I'm going to propose today is that it's not a narrative that we just see happen one time in history with Exodus. It's a narrative that we see actually repeat. Happens again under the Roman rule, Jesus' time. And you hear even Jesus speak against this idea of totalism to his disciples. And in fact, I would say we're living in the narrative of totalism today with 21st capitalism, 21st century capitalism. And so what I would love to propose, and I know that I'll receive a lot of pushback, is that we are called to do what perhaps these people of curiously strong faith did and exit, depart from a narrative of totalism into something entirely different, into the wilderness. So let's begin. Let's look at a few things, a few markers of totalism, help understand us a little better. Totalism, it starts with this. Totalism, there is fear because of a scarcity mindset. There is fear because of a scarcity mindset. Totalism claims to have everything, right? Monopoly on all. It has it all. However, at the same time, even though it has everything, it says, ah, but there's not enough for everyone. So there's this fierce competition that's played out. It's the lifeblood of totalism, of capitalism, if you want to call it. And so you have this intense fight of, of people trying to accumulate, trying to hoard, trying to consume all that they can before other people out-consume, out-hoard, and out-accumulate you. You don't want to get left with the short end of the stick. So everyone's accumulating, hoarding, monopolizing what they can. And the, the, the driving force of it is a mindset of scarcity, of there's not enough to go around. There's not enough to go around. And we see this played out even in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. It says this. It says, Now there arose a king, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So this dude, he didn't have a clue that Joseph was the man that actually is the one to thank for saving his nation through seven years of famine. He, he, he just doesn't know that part of history. He didn't take history growing up. I don't know. And he said to his people, here's what Pharaoh says to the Egyptian people. It says, Behold. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We can't, we can't have our labor force escape. That's what makes this whole system, this whole beautiful extravagant lifestyle possible is that some can have many and others are enslaved. And so fear drives that process. He's filled with anxiety, so much so it's pretty crazy when you think about it. He actually orders, because of this fear, the death of his own labor force. He tells those that are having these Hebrew baby boys, kill them, throw them in the Nile. Throw them in the Nile. It's a narrative, again, we see in Jesus' time. Remember King Herod? What did he do? Out of fear and anxiety, ordered the killing, the slaughter of little boys, fearing that he would lose his kingdom Lose, lose his leadership, lose his influence, that he'd be overtaken, that there's not enough. See, fear and anxiety drives this, 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 this totalism uh, system, this mindset, this value system, this worldview. It drives it. 
And it's so, it's, it's, it's interesting how it permeates everything, and yet it's very subtle at the same time. It comes across in just little things, even like this. Maybe you've heard these type things. But get it while supplies last. Right? Get it while supplies last. Or the sale ends tomorrow. So, you know, hurry up. Hurry up. Or this consumer type mindset of trade in your old for something new. Who cares if the old's still fine? Who cares if it's still good? Just trade it in. Get something new now. It's crazy. It's just, it's just pervasive. It's everywhere. And I don't know, maybe you've heard some of these stats, but, but as Americans, we consume a disproportional amount of stuff in comparison to the world. Got a few numbers to throw you away here. We make up 5%, 5% of the global population, and yet we love to use 20% of the world's energy. But check it out. Get, get ready to give yourselves a pat on the back. We just, we kill it here. We produce 40% of the world's garbage. Oh yeah, take that, right? Crazy to think about, astonishing numbers. And it really is this drive towards, uh, you know, happiness or something greater, right? This uh, idealized American dream. But in fact, what we see is we see this epidemic of fear and anxiety going through the roof right now in our society. In uh, the National Center for Health Statistics, they said that for those that are ages 12 and up between years 1988 and 2008, there was a 400% increase in the prescription of anti-anxiety and antidepressants. Just an explosion of those that are dealing with this. In year 2012, for just Xanax, just Xanax alone, not all, not all anti-anxiety medication, but just Xanax, 46 million prescriptions were filled. It's amazing. You'd think if there's anything that totalism could have, it would somehow give you happiness and assurance Oh no, it gives you fear and anxiety. It's rooted in scarcity. So could there be a correlation between that fear and the narrative of totalism? Second thing, second, second marker of totalism that we find out. It has a bottom line. Totalism has a bottom line. The bottom line is this. Just work harder. Just work harder. If you're working hard, that's great. Just work harder now. Oh, you're working harder now? That's great. Just work harder. It's all about, hey, just, just get it done. Just get it done. We see this, Exodus chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people, of, people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall no means uh, reduce it for they are idle. Essentially, hey, we used to provide straw for them. Now make them go out and gather the straw, but make sure that they're making the same number of bricks. Right? Is that not a mantra that we've been kind of just dialed into? Just make more bricks, make more bricks, make more bricks. You know, if you want to go on vacation, that's great. Just stay connected. I mean, like respond to emails, you know. Uh, hey, don't forget the ABCs. Always be closing. You know, like it's just always just work more, work more. Hey, what have you done for me lately? Oh, yeah, you did great last quarter. I'm not worried about last quarter. How are you doing this quarter? It's all now. It's all work harder, work harder, work harder. This is interesting. USA Today, they did a survey amongst Americans, and they said, let's pretend for a moment we're able to add an eighth day to the week. We now have eight days in the week. What would you spend that eighth day doing? Would it be a day of leisure, of maybe family time, going out, having fun, or rest? Or, or would it be, you know, sports? Or, or what, what would you do on that eighth day? Vast majority says, oh, I would try to catch up at work. I would work harder. It is driven into us. It's a narrative that we're woven into. 
And I, I have to imagine, as the Israelites, if they'd been there 430 years, think about that. That's almost twice as long as we've been a nation. They've been there 430 years. You've got to assume that it gets into the state, into the mind of those generations, that this is just the way it is. This is just what we do. We're the people that make bricks. This, we're, that's just the part that we live out right now. We're, we're great at it. We can make really great square bricks and, and we work hard. And, and you've got to imagine they've just bought into this. This is just the way it is. What have we, what have we bought into as it's just the way it is? What agreements have we made in maybe the narrative of totalism that we've just accepted that maybe we should begin to push back on? Last thing, last marker in totalism. I love this one. That's my favorite one. Totalism has limits. Totalism has limits. It promises everything. It has a lot. Can't argue that. It's got a lot going on for itself. However, it does have limits. And we see this play out in, in different ways, but we understand this. Even the, even the best football team doesn't win the Super Bowl sometimes, right? I mean, uh, it still hurts to say. Oh, why does it hurt so bad? It still hurts. Oh, next year. That's next year. Come on. People curious with strong faith. Next year. Come on. Whew. All right. Wow. I feel, I seriously have a lot of anxiety. That's really weird. Okay. We also know that the unsinkable ship can be brought down by a chunk of ice. Right? Oh, there's no way that'll ever sink. Whoop. Unless you hit an iceberg, then it might sink, you know? Or how about, how about we know that the, 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 the largest 4G coverage still has drop costs. <laughs> See, totalism has its limits. Totalism has its limits. Moses goes to Pharaoh multiple times, total 10 times. He says, hey, Pharaoh, time to let my people go. Time to let the Lord's people go. Their cries have been lifted up. They've brought their pain to speech, and the Lord has saw them, remembered them, and knows their state. It's time to let them go and worship him. You know what Pharaoh says? Uh, no. No, I'm not giving up my labor force. I still need bricks. I got a few more pyramids to make, you know, or whatever. I don't know what he says. But, but what the Lord does is he has to speak. He has to communicate to Pharaoh in about the only language Pharaoh is going to actually understand, and that's might and power. So, so the Lord rolls out this 10-week curriculum in the form of 10 different plagues because uh, Pharaoh's a slow learner. <laughs> Too bad he didn't take the first one or the second one. He had to go through all 10. Uh, and, and the interesting thing each of those combats a, uh, an idol or something that the Egyptians worshipped in their society. So it's really interesting, this play that the, that the Lord is, is kind of orchestrating. But it's so, it's so intriguing. You look at the first two plagues. The first plague, the, the Nile, the water it turns to blood. And, and what's crazy is it says that Pharaoh and his magicians, his intelligence community or whatever, was actually able to copy that, was able to uh, uh, match that. Kind of a, it went to a tie, essentially. And then the second one, frogs. Frogs came up from all over the land. I mean, just imagine frogs everywhere, like everywhere, in your, in your house, in your bed, everywhere. And it says actually that, that Moses and by their magical arts or whatever, that they were actually able to produce frogs. However... The third plague, things shift a little bit. Totalism has its limits. Here's what we see. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. I just got to say, I love to go for runs. This is the time of year that I dread. Because you're running and there's just clouds, them little bugs that like go all up in your mouth and your eyes, up your nose. Like anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you're just outside, you're enjoying yourself. Okay, there were gnats in all the land. 
You could not go anywhere without getting gnats in your eyes, up your nose, and in your mouth. And so they, and, and they did so. So Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Check this out. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. But they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Can you imagine word spreading in the Egyptian land, even amongst not just the Hebrews, but the Egyptians themselves? They couldn't produce gnats. Our road scholars, our brilliant minds, our best scientists, they couldn't produce gnats. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do with this Pharaoh that we've worshipped? What do we do with this narrative of totalism that we've just described to all of our lives? Totalism has limits. Totalism's great at making the, the, the most beautiful of cars. I mean, great like little add-ons, great, great features. But it can't even solve rush hour traffic. Totalism's great at building beautiful mansions and homes and new, new developments. But it can't solve affordable housing or homelessness. Totalism's amazing at producing all kinds of food, more than what's even needed, but people still go hungry. Totalism's awesome at rolling out the next best medicine, and yet not everyone gets access. Totalism has limits. So what do we do? What do people with curiously strong faith do? And the fill-in for that, the answer to that is this. People of curiously strong faith enter the wilderness. They enter the wilderness. They exit. There's an exodus from the narrative of totalism into the wilderness. And the wilderness is a strange place. People in totalism, they look at the wilderness and they say, there is no way to make life happen out there. There is no way to have a viable or sustainable life out in the wilderness. And yet we'll look at things that say differently. We'll look at things that say differently. It's a place of the unexpected where there's these God encounters that you just can't explain. I mean, where did, what did Moses see in the wilderness? He saw some burning bush and met God at a burning bush. There's just crazy things that go down in the wilderness. There's some supernatural experiences that happen in the wilderness. It's a new empire, a new kingdom, and it has new values and a new king, thankfully. Instead of ruled with fear, it's ruled with love. It has a totally different mindset, a whole different uh, system of thinking, a whole different worldview. And so three markers of the wilderness. One... There is enough because of God's provision. Huge departure from scarcity-based thinking. Huge departure from it. There's this, this, this thought, this idea, this true belief held that there is enough. Exodus chapter 16, in the evening, quail. Quail are these cute little birds with like this weird little thing that sticks out. I don't know, some city folk out here just describing it for you. We had a lot in Spokane. Little quail, kind of run around. Uh, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. Just everywhere, just <laughs> quail, everywhere. Uh, kind of like the gnats, but these are birds. Uh, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. And so they named it Frosted Flakes. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. They should have. They should have. They came up with a way lamer name, but whatever. Uh, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? And no joke, that's what they named it. Manna means what is it? So... Loss of creativity. Great faith, poor creativity. They said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. See, God provides. God provides. I wrote this down. First song we sang. 
There was a line that says, our God provides our every need. Oh, it sounds great to music. Do we believe it? Do we believe that he will produce enough for us in our lives? Do we believe that there is enough? Do we believe that the clothes we wear are provided by God? The meals we eat are provided by God? The roofs over our head are provided by God? Do we believe that? Do we live into that? I hope it's not driven out of scarcity. I hope that we truly believe that there is enough out of God's provision. So how can we be reminded of the enough in our lives? How do we begin to turn wish lists into like Thanksgiving lists or the, or the beautiful, bountiful blessings that we've been given by the Lord type lists? And what should we do with the abundance in our life? It's interesting to me that the Lord said, hey, I'll produce manna every day. I'm going to wean you away from this narrative that you've seen lived around you of collection, abundance, monopolize, hoard. And I'm going to provide for you daily. I'm going to ask you just collect what you need that day and then I'll bring it again tomorrow. It's so different to begin to live with the mindset of enough. Instead of the bottom line being work harder in the wilderness, it's far different. It's far different. The bottom line is love. The bottom line is love. I love this. I'm so jealous of Moses. He had such cool moments, the whole burning bush thing. And then he gets to go to summer camp. 40 days, 40 nights, up on a mountaintop <laughs> with God. And he's up there. He's getting some cool God time. Like, and what he's been given is like these uh, 10 laws, these 10 commandments. He ends up breaking them. This is a kind of crazy story. But, but he gets these 10 laws. And really they deal with two things. Love God and love people. Love. Love is the operating theme. It's the value set. It's, it's the focus. It's not work harder, work harder, work harder. It's love your neighbor. Love one another. Love your enemy. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Greatest commandment in all of scripture. Here's Jesus' response. Luke 10, 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What I love about Jesus is that he doesn't just talk about it. It's not just lip service for him. He lives it. His whole life is dedicated to living others. And then he truly dedicates his life out of the love for others, for all mankind. And then he asks, hey, for those of you that wish to follow me, please do the same. Please love one another. Please, please, please love thy neighbor and love your enemy. Love is the purpose, not work harder, not work harder. We have an opportunity this fall to really lean into this. The week after Labor Day, a couple weeks out, we're going to be having life group signups happening here at Overlake for those that are not yet connected into a small group that meets on a regular basis. Groups that, that really exist for, I always think of it as three words. They connect, they grow in their faith, and, and then they serve in the community. So connect, grow, and serve. And so what we need, before we can even get there, is people that are willing to raise their hands and say, I'll go into the wilderness and I'll lead one of these groups. And this fall is, 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 is really a perfect timing for it. We're going to, as a whole church, go through an exciting series in the months of October, November. We're going to walk through this uh, transformed life uh, 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 topic, this whole series and we're going to use that in not just Sunday mornings, but also in life groups. So you'll be well-equipped as a leader. We already, I've already met with people. met with a couple up in Beaver Lake that's willing to raise their hand and say, we're opening our home for people to come and join us up here in Sammamish. I uh, met, met with a couple that lives over by Grass Lawn. they got a couple little kids, and they're like, yep, we'll do the same. 
Uh, I met with a young man who was in the Navy. He has a heart to see uh, veterans connecting together and walking through this. Uh, I talked to someone else, going to meet with them next week. They live up in Marysville, and, and they recognize there's some overlakers that come down out of the wilderness here. <laughs> uh, 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 but they would love to connect with, with those that come from way up north. But, but we need more. I'm, 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 the number in my head is 20. If we can get 20, that represents 200 more people getting connected. And so I'd love to see that happen. But it's going to require people going in and, and venturing into the wilderness. Last marker, last marker, and this one's exciting. This one's exciting about the wilderness. The supernatural happens. The supernatural happens. I don't mean just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. There's some cool things that happen every now and then. I mean like freaking the supernatural. Ah, I was, I was told not to use that word actually. Whoops. Uh, here's three verses to support that claim. Here's what we see in Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. The people of Israel ate manna for how many years? 40. How long does it take to create a habit? 40 years. No, it's like 21 days. But, <laughs> but I bet you, I bet you it takes about 40 years to really rework your mindset, your value system, your worldview. I bet it takes a lot longer than just 21 days. You know what's crazy? Israelites, this is funny. This is funny. They get two verses into the wilderness, and what do they say? Yeah, let's go back. Yeah, we were good at making bricks. I kind of know how things work a little better back there. Well, it's just a little crazy. Like, I don't know if I like this old bread thing. It's a little interesting. They get two verses in. It is tempting to go back to what we know. Another one, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. What? What? Why? How? I don't know. But I think when you're in the wilderness, you're going to ask a lot of questions. What is this? Where did it come from? Why? How? You know? I think we'll live in a bewildered state of God's great provision that just happens in the supernatural. And I don't think the goal is to then be able to explain it. I think it's just to be able to rejoice and say, yeah, there's enough. And there's enough because of God's great supernatural provision. Third thing, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. There was this little battle going on. And I don't know how this works. When, when Moses raised his hands, they were winning. When the arms went down, they were losing. It's kind of weird. I don't know. But I wish that worked with Seahawks. Like, whoo, you know. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Moses. Uh, so they had, he had to get a couple guys to hold his arms up so they would prevail, and prevail they did. But there's going to be things, there's going to be uh, uh, things that we're called to live into that we just need to trust the Lord as he speaks them. And then we just live them out out of obedience. How do we know what we're called to do? How are we going to know what living in the wilderness actually looks like? And this is where this message, uh, trust me. So hard to deliver because there's no clean-cut practical next steps. It's not, let's do these three things this next week. But it's listen to the Spirit and then just respond. It says Israel was led by a cloud and by a pillar of fire. Uh, another, other words that we, that we sang in praise. Right before I walked up here, we were singing a song about the Holy Spirit. Together we read or we sang these, these eight words. Let us become more aware of your presence. That's what it requires. It requires us being so aware of God's presence that we respond. And so I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to look like. It may look like spending less time making bricks and more time getting to know your family and community here at Overlake. It may mean making less wish lists and more, more lists of just God's blessing in your life. Helping again see just the abundance that he's given you. Is it giving the first portion of what you've been given instead of just the leftovers? 
Is it joining a life group? Is it, is it starting a new life group? Is it offering someone forgiveness instead of revenge? Is it praying a bold prayer of faith instead of living paralyzed in fear? Is it spending less time chasing the American dream and more time bringing the kingdom here on earth? Is it trading fear for peace as you begin to operate, not out of scarcity, not out of competition, not out of fear, but more into a recognition that God provides, that there's enough, and that your role, your call is to love? So this is bold. This takes a lot of faith to begin to depart the narratives of totalism and lean into the wilderness. But it's what we're called to as the people of God. And luckily, we do have the Spirit leading us. And we're not alone. Think of a community this size beginning to live in the wilderness. When others used to look out there that, yeah, that's not possible. There will always be hunger. There will always be homelessness. There will always be the ill and the sick, and there will always be the poor, and, and on and on and on. What if we actually begin to embrace those that community just writes off? That, that we begin to breathe new life into what community says is dead? What if we begin to live out these new rhythms and values? What if we actually live out the, this, this new kingdom as opposed to what totalism has to offer? And be prepared to want to go back. Be prepared to want to go back. Because it'll come. The temptation will come. But let's commit. Let's commit to 40 years of this. 40 years of just seeking the Lord. 40 years of just a sensitivity to his spirit. Over like, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that your spirit would come and rest upon each of us in our body, mind, and spirit right now in this moment. Would you speak? Would you bring thought? Would you bring new ideas? Would you just bring a, a fresh way of thinking, even in this moment, that we can begin to live and to walk into, each as individuals but collectively as one, as a body, as a family here? And give us courage, knowing that there will be moments where we want to go back to the way it's always been done. We'll be wanting to go back to just making bricks, but would you help us? Would, would, would you speak to us? Would you provide for us? Would, would we lean into this recognition that you will do the supernatural? And so increase our faith. Would we be known as people of curiously strong faith? And would we bear witness to a new kingdom with a new king and not, 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 not a different narrative with, with, with some pharaoh in control? But we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.